0: So welcome back, and we're going to be doing our uh, our next sermon sermon here on, on our uh, topic of welcome, hospitality. Last week, if you didn't hear, please go online to the church website, BethelGU.com, and you can listen to the sermon we were talking about, The Heart of Hospitality. Uh, we talked about Esther. And how she could have made all of these decisions to not help her people. But she did make good decisions and helped her people. And so she had this wonderful, wonderful heart to help her people. She could have been offended, and she wasn't. She could have um, only cared about doing things that made her feel good, and she didn't despite the fact that she was living in the palace and probably could have been saved because she was the queen. She not only survived, but she helped her people survive. And that heart that she had is something that we need to have as we're being hospitable as well. But today we're going to talk about the head of hospitality. So if you guys are heady, if you have analytical brains, get ready. You're going to enjoy this one. Um, If you don't, well, good news is it, it'll be over soon. <laughs> I want to share a couple lists with you of a couple things that we take for granted nowadays that didn't exist 100 years ago. First, the internet. We use the internet all the time. And if you don't use the internet all the time, it's okay. Someone around you uses the internet all the time. Good, bad, or for whatever reason. Email. Email has changed everything. Even people who say, I don't use email. They have an email address because if you want to do business in the world today, you got to have email. There are more emails sent than letters. There's more emails that have been sent since emails existed than letters have ever been sent in the United States. That's a lot. People have a lot to say. GPS. Some of you guys are going, GPS, that thing is to I remember one time we were in Oregon, and we were driving, and we were trying to get to, uh, I think it was an aquarium or something. We were on vacation, and uh, I was driving up this hill because GPS told me to go that way. And then it's, uh, I get to the top, and there's this barrier. It's the top of the hill, and there's a barrier, and the GPS is saying, go 200 feet and turn left or something like that. And I get out of the car, I look down, and I went, oh, there's the road. Luckily, GPS, I think, has gotten a little bit better. Now we can get it all on our, on our phones. Calculators! How many of you guys, and I have a calculator on my phone now, how many of you guys had a teacher growing up, and you used a calculator in in school, and the teacher went, you'll never have a calculator around when you need it. You're going to have to know these things. Maybe it's just my generation. And then I pull my phone out and go, look, Calculator. <laughs> But calculators didn't exist 100 years ago. ATMs. You guys ever go to the ATM? No. Well, not a whole lot of people do anymore either. (laughs) You can use your card for everything. Sometimes people just go into the bank. But ATMs didn't exist 100 years ago. How about digital cameras? Now I have it on my phone. My wife was telling me the other day because she was talking about her camera that she has. She has this professional digital camera. She's like, it's only 10 megapixels. The first digital camera that was ever, that was ever developed was .001 megapixels. So we've come a long way. And those things are now on our phones. A little thing right there. This is more powerful than my wife's very expensive camera that she bought a long time ago. Another thing that didn't exist a hundred years ago: band-aids. My kids love band-aids. I think they don't even need it half the time, and they want a band-aid. I need a band-aid. You're not bleeding. I need a band-aid. It just makes it feel better, I guess. Or how about how about this one? The hay baler. I mean, you guys have ever been the uh, pre- recipients of of the hay from a baler? I thought that would, that would resonate a little bit more around here. The hay baler didn't exist 100 years ago. The hay baler was the guy down the street <laughs> with, the pitchfork, with the pitchfork putting it into piles. Now they have machines, spits it right out the back end. And just, uh, just for some of you guys, it is a case. So I don't know if there's anyone that's like particular about that. But there you go. Now here's another thing. Penicillin. Penicillin didn't exist 100 years ago. That's changed a lot of stuff, hasn't it? And the National Anthem. Did you know the National Anthem wasn't instituted until later? Yeah. We didn't have the National Anthem 100 years ago. I was really surprised by that one. All right, so here's a couple things. This is my next list. This is some stuff that was common 100 years ago that have luckily... Uh, fallen out of practice. Using leeches for medical use. What's sad is I was actually looking up online as I was doing my research for this, and apparently it's coming back. Heroin, over the counter. Yeah, you can't buy heroin, heroin over the counter anymore, guys. You can't get cocaine that way either. But you used to. Silent movies. Silent movies have fallen out of favor, you know, in the past hundred years. Um, How about women voting? Women, do you like to vote? You couldn't a hundred years ago. That's changed. Child labor. Now, I make my kids do chores, but I don't make them go down in the mines. There was no child labor laws a hundred years ago. Or uh, how about rationing? Now we ration by choice because our budget tells us to. But a hundred years ago, <laughs> wasteline. <laughs> but a hundred years ago, the country was busy fighting a war, and they needed all the food they could on the front, so they would ration for World War One. See, the thing is, is that there's one more thing that's changed over the last hundred years. In America, we've become incredibly more affluent. And with that affluent comes our ability to choose a lot more things. We have a lot more choice than we used to. Just think about it. Back in the day, before I was born... Not possibly before a lot of you were born. You had one phone company, and you would rent your phone from the phone company, and they sent it to you, and the thing would hardly ever break, and that was common. And they were all the same. They are having so much fun down there. But now, today, think of it. You can go to Walmart or Target. You can go to Best Buy. and You can go to Marshall Lumber and pick up a phone. You plug it into your home phone line. And the thing breaks in about two years. And you go and get another one. <laughs> or, you know, you can get a smartphone or or a cell phone. And it connects up to a cell phone service. And then you got a phone right there in your pocket. Or if you really want to get nerdy, you do like I did and you get this little thing that plugs it, that you plug into the wall at your house and then it makes your home phone it works on cell phone service. Right. So I have a Verizon home phone at home. <laughs> it plugs into my home phone. Okay? So you have that. But have you ever thought about how choices have changed, even just in the last 20 years? In 2005, a man named Barry Sh- uh, Schwartz, and you can look him up if you want. He's not a Christian guy. But he wrote a book about, uh, about, this, about this concept of choices. And he wrote, that, uh, he, he wrote this thing called uh, An Official American Dogma. And I want to read it to you real quick. It goes like this. If we are interested in maximizing the welfare of our citizens, this is a dogma in America. If we're interested in maximizing the welfare of our citizens, the way to do that is to maximize individual freedom. The reason for this is both that freedom is, in itself, good, valuable, worthwhile, essential to being human, and because people have freedom— then each of us can act on our own good on our own to do the things that will maximize our welfare and no one has to decide it on our behalf the way to maximize freedom is to maximize choice the more choice people have the more freedom they have and the more freedom they have the more welfare they have this is what we call an american dogma we believe this We believe that choice is a really, really, really good thing. Giving people more choice obviously gives them more freedom. And because they have more freedom, they're going to be happier because they have more choice. You see how this kind of goes in a cycle? But after decades and decades and decades of research into this concept, you know what they figured out? It's not always right. It's right in some aspects, but not in others. You see, the thing is is that it's good and bad to have more choices. We think about, uh, you know, think about when you got new, kid, new clothes as a kid. Ben, back me up on this because we're, we're closer in age. And, and Casey, you can help me with this too. When mom took us to the store, we went to the store, and there was one kind of jeans. You knew what your waist size was. You knew what your inseam size was and then you got that one pair of jeans, right? That's how, that's how it was when I was six years old. You went to the store, you got that one pair of jeans, and it never fit right, right? I know you. I, I know the rest of you guys can, can, can remember this too. You went out and you got a pair of pants, and there was only that one pair of pants that you could get, and it never fit right. And you're like, you're walking around trying to break those pants in and trying to, trying to get used to them. And, and see, the thing is, is that as a kid you get mad about that. Cause it's like, it doesn't fit right. And you want to blame your mom because she took you out to get the jeans and you didn't want to get those jeans cause they never fit quite right. Well, you could have blamed the company cause they only made the one or they only sold the one. But that didn't last forever did it? Eventually we grew up and then we got more choices. So Levi's came out with the 511s, the 513s, the 514s, the 501s. Oh, by the way, the 501s is the original, the 504, the 508. You know, I like the 523s, you could find those sometimes. Um and then in the 90s, when I was late 90s, we had these wonderful things called Jinkos. You guys remember these? Yeah, everyone had to have a pair of jinkos. You know these things that look like be this big. People walking around with them about like right there, and you know, they have to walk around like this constantly. You still see them like that. I'm like, guys, seriously, pull your pants up. You see, the thing is, is that before you got what you got, and you could throw a fit, but there's nothing you can do about it. I use this term with my kids, you get what you get and you don't throw a fit. Usually it's about dinner time when I say that. (laughs) Because you don't get a whole lot of choice at dinner. You're going to eat what you got or you know where bed is. You get what you get and you don't throw a fit. Now, I've got more choice. I can do what I want. I can go out and buy all these different kinds. I can try them on. You know, this one sits at the waist. It has a button fly, 17-inch leg opening. This one has, you know, sits below the waist, straight leg, 17-inch leg opening, 15-inch leg. So you go out and you buy this, and you're like, I have so many more choices, and you get the right waist size, you get the right inseam size, and you go into the dressing room, and you try them on. Well, unless you're a guy, you're just like, well, that's going to fit, and you take it home, and you try it on. Um, And now, you put them on, and you go, that still doesn't fit right. But whose fault is that? You could still blame the company, but the reality is, is you had so many other choices you could have picked from. I couldn't run in these things, but they looked cool. They were not comfortable, but it was on me because at that point I had more choices, and still didn't fit right. See, the thing is, the modern world has given us so many choices, but in the end, it's almost harmed us. See, the first thing, the first problem that it causes is it causes paralysis in us. Let me give you an example. A study was done of a large company, had hundreds of employees, and they offered retirement funds. And you know what they found out? For every 10 funds that they offered as choices, they had 2% less participation. So, for instance, if they had 50 different funds that they offered for retirement, 10% fewer of their employees would participate in the retirement. And this paralysis of a decision meant that these people were losing out on money. They saw all these different choices, all these different options, and they went, that's just too complicated. And instead of making a decision, they just let it go. And they left money on the table. And you see this throughout other areas as well. <laughs> and not just in this. How many times have you come up to something and you're like, oh, there's just too many choices here. This is going to take too long. The second one is what economists call an opportunity cost. So the, when the, the way this works is when there are a lot of alternatives to consider, it is really easy to imagine the attractive features of alternatives that we reject. Think of it this way. Every time you pick something, you're rejecting something else. So, for instance, maybe you wanna go hunting. You're like, I'm gonna go hunting. And then you get out there and you're watching for an animal to move and then you start thinking, you know, I probably should have spent some time with my kids. I probably should have spent some time with my family instead of being out here. See, that's that opportunity cost. Or think of it this way. Let's say you're spending time with your family, and they're going crazy, and then you're like, man, I really wish I could be bowling right now or hunting. Bowling? (laughs) You know, whatever. Golfing? Anyone like going to golf? The cost of our opportunities and our choices end up subtracting from our satisfaction of what we've actually chosen, even if what we've chosen is the right thing, like taking your wife out for a date. Maybe the choices is, is that you get to take your wife out for a date, and you're like, yes, and then you're like, but I had to give up bowling, and that's all you're thinking about on the date. That's why they made ESPN on your phone. So you can watch the game while she's talking. No, don't do that, guys. I'm telling you, it is not a good thing. That's why they make um. That's why they make uh, uh, Buffalo Wild Wings to take her out to. You can watch the game and and anyway, this is terrible marriage advice. <laughs> All right. What about uh, the third the third one here? This is called escalation of expectations. Okay. The third one is escalation of expectations. This go back to my jeans analogy. With having all these different choices, I was thinking to myself, man, I expected so much more out of these pants. What I ended up with was good and not perfect. What I want is perfect. I want this thing to fit me perfectly. But because I, even though I have all of these different choices, it still doesn't meet my, my expectations. Technology has been working its way around this problem. Think about a computer. You go out and buy a brand new computer, and it works really well today, and in five years that thing has slowed down, technology has increased so much, the software has increased so much your computer can't keep up. It is obsolete. We have created that word to describe things that frustrate us (laughs) because they just don't work anymore as well as they used to. So what do we do? We just toss it out and go buy another one. And guess what? The cycle just continues. And now about, right about now, you guys are sitting there going, Aren't you a pastor? Stop talking about these things. Why haven't you started preaching anything? There's not been a word of scripture yet. Yeah, I wrote that down in my notes. Because <laughs> I, as I was writing this, I'm like, people are going to be thinking this by now. In John chapter 13, Christ is sitting down and having the last supper with his disciples. And can I tell you something? Christian hospitality is a choice. He sits down to have his last supper with his disciples. He takes a break from the meal and starts to wash their feet. It's an act of service. And no one expects him to do it. So let's, let's see what he says. John chapter 13, verse 34-35 says, A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Let me give some backstory to this, okay? Because there's, there's more to the context. In chapter 13, verse 20, he says, Very truly I tell you. This is when the old King James would say, Very verily, verily, verily. It means I really mean what I'm about to say. Whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. One more time. Whoever accepts anyone I send, whoever God sends, if you accept them, then whoever accepts them accepts the one who sent them, no matter who it is. This is an important concept because Jesus is saying that he's sending people to us as people we interact with every single day. Jesus is saying to his disciples that if we show love to those around us and accept them, not pushing them away or pushing them away from the fellowship with us or with them or with God, then we are accepting Christ himself. Those people in our lives who need to see God are his creation. The people that pass us on the roads and we think that they're crazy for passing us on the icy roads and you get mad at them, they're God's creation. The people that have hurt you in the past, they're God's creation. The people that you see every single day that drive you insane, they're God's creation. (laughs) That leaves us with a very interesting choice, doesn't it? See, the thing is, is I think too often we can get caught up in the how of hospitality, and we forget to show it at all. Our minds get in the way of our obedience. Our emotions can get in the way of our obedience. You know, when I was younger, my mom used to tell me something that radically changed my life. I don't know why she waited till I was a teenager to teach me this concept, but she, maybe she was trying earlier. I don't remember. <laughs> it was this concept called immediate obedience. I have a friend in Virginia. He puts it this way to his kids, and I've started using it with my kids because I thought it was so wonderful how he put it. He said, slow obedience is no obedience. We have a simpler choice than we think church. God is calling us to be obedient. He's not concerned as much with the how of our obedience as long as we are obedient to him. And how we execute it and how we you know, making sure that and don't cause don't don't sin in the process of being obedient. That's 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 against what you need to be doing in the first place. But be obedient. Just just do it. See, and when and when I was in the army and going through basic training and getting ready to deploy and everything, they used to drag us out to the range and we'd have to walk out there. It took like three hours to walk out there with full all of our gear on. And I used to be um, half the man I used to be. <laughs> literally. <laughs> um, literally, and I, we would walk out there, and then we we'd rest for a little bit. But they'd go over, you know, how to do marksmanship. You know, you take your rifle, you get it ready, you do all these different things to make sure everything is ready, and then you get set up, and then you get, and then you have to like aim at the targets and make sure you have a good line of sight on the targets. You have to zero your weapon, and you guys. Zeroing is such a pain sometimes, especially when you're trying to get it within that millimeter because that millimeter is a difference between hitting a 300-meter target and not (laughs) on a zero target. And so you have to get everything ready. So once everything is ready, then you have to go out to the range, and then they're like, okay, aim. So you start aiming, and aiming takes a lot of time to get the aim right because you're trying to figure out where the targets are going to pop up out in the field. So they pop up, and then you have to aim, and you have to get it lined up, and then you fire. That takes a lot of time. Now, granted, with a lot of practice, you get a lot faster at it. So you have this concept of ready, aim, fire. How many steps is that? Three. It takes a lot of time to do three steps. Have you ever been out hunting and you had the perfect target out there and you're like, I'm going to get this thing lined up just right and then it runs off? Don't you hate that? (laughs) Should have shot. Can I tell you something? War is different. It's not hunting and it's not target practice. In war... The other tr- the other guy's trying to aim too. So over in Iraq, we came up with a new mantra. This is something that's not new, but it's something they tell you when you get over there. It's ready. Fire. Aim. Fire again. Why? Because in the, in war, you have to be ready. You have to be ready before you even leave the wire, before you go outside your camp. you got to have your stuff ready to go. And when the bad guy shows up, you fire. Why? Because he's probably trying to aim, and if you start firing at him, it'll take him off. And then you aim and, fig- you know, you watch your bullets, see which way it went. If it missed him 300 yards this direction because you were way off, then you aim and bring it over this way. What do we call that, Kentucky windage? (laughs) I don't know what you guys call it up here. We used to call it Kentucky windage. You know, the wind is pulling it that way, so we're going to pull it off this way, and we just re-aim and we fire again. And oftentimes, you'd hit them. Sometimes you didn't, but don't worry. That's why the helicopter's there. (laughs) Because they put a lot more bullets down than we did. See, the thing is, is that we're at war I think a lot of times we forget that, folks. We're at war with the enemy. And when you're at war and you're in combat, you have no shortage of bullets. You don't have to conserve your ammunition. I mean, if stuff gets real bad, maybe you do, but you don't have to. We have a God who is infinitely available to us and has more supply than we could ever, ever use up. But we sit here and we go, ready. We're getting ready. We're still getting ready. And then we're like, aim. We're going to figure out what we're going to do in our community. We're going to figure out what we're going to do. We're going to plan. We're going to do all this stuff. We're going we're to target. We're going to get things ready. God is waiting for you to fire. And the thing is, is we could sit here. Here, I'll, I'll, I'll give a demonstration. We could sit here. And we could talk about the glory days of how things used to be, about that one time we did fire and we got a great response. Some of you are in this room right now because this church had a, had a moment where they fired. They took a chance. Someone in this church took a chance and you're here because of it. And you can celebrate that. And I celebrate that every single time that God's gospel lands on someone and it takes hold and as opposed to a bullet where someone is killed the gospel fires out born again salvation and when it hits it makes positive change in people but i think so many times we get so caught up in the fact that we have so many different ways in which we can do this that we can get paralyzed. Or we can sit back and we can go, you know, I know I'm doing this, but man, I should have been doing that. Even if it's the best decision. Or maybe you show up to something and it didn't meet your expectations. Sometimes when you're firing out your witness and you're sharing the gospel, it'll miss. But It's not going to miss every time. God has a word for this church. As for me in this house, we're going to serve the Lord. Just the way Joshua said. People need to hear what's going on. They need to hear the gospel. They need to see us actively working out, trying things. We need to get out there and fire. And if we miss, we miss. Guys, the enemy is out there doing everything he can to screw us up, to screw up our community. And he is leaving a big old mess behind. And the mess he leaves behind is gross. It's horrible. It's destruction. It's pain. What's the worst thing we could leave behind? The gospel message. The people in the community going, man, why'd they do that? Man, they made a big old mess for, the, for God. Why'd the, why did that church do that? You mean a church went out and did something? Guys, we got to get our heads in the right game. We got to get our heads in the right place. Because God is calling us to be very, very practical. I believe there's great things coming from the church. I don't want to wait. We're ready. If we've got a word in our heart if god has given us a a, if god has done something in our lives we have something to share we just got to go out and fire show god's love in a practical way next week we're going to talk about the hands of hospitality and it's really going to be a very very practical message So I'm hoping to see you guys here, because we've got some good stuff coming. Things for y'all to get involved in. Something for you to think about, engage your hearts in. Well, let's pray. With every head out and every eye closed just want to give an opportunity right now for anyone in this church who hasn't had an opportunity to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Not just a feeling of knowing that, a feeling that you're saved, but knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that God has radically changed your life in a good way. So if there's anyone here I want you to pray this prayer with me. And we're actually, as a church, we're going to pray this all out loud together. So repeat after me. Lord God, thank you so much for saving me. I pray, Lord God, that you'll be my Lord and Savior. Forgive me of my sins. And I pray that I can live live for you the rest of my life. So that I can be with you throughout eternity. Amen. Now we're going to pray again. (laughs) Lord God, right now I pray for everyone in this room. As we get ready to radically transform how we do a lot of things around here. As we get ready to serve our community in a brand new way. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you'll be in everyone's heart. In everyone's life, Lord God, that you will radically change the way that they see the people around them. Lord God, I pray that instead of feeling that they don't have things quite right, that they'll just take that chance, that they'll fire out with your word, with your gospel, with their testimony. That they'll be willing to practically serve others. That they'll remember that even Esther, when she tried to send Mordecai clothes and she was off on that target, that it gave an open door so that she could minister for real. Those clothes were a door opening. Lord God, I thank you for everyone who has been amazing in this church. I honor that. I think that's awesome. And Lord God, I, I pray for that to continue, to double, to triple, to quadruple. Lord God, I am less concerned about getting people in the seats of this church, and I am more concerned about getting people into heaven. Let us be about that work first. And I Lord now, Lord God, I pray that we would choose God's love. No matter what, in every situation, even if we're frustrated, even if people are attacking us, I pray that we'd be able to choose God's love. In your name, Amen. All right guys, I'm going to play a quick video for you to give you kind of a preview of what's coming up. And after the video's done, you guys are dismissed. I'll come back here cuz I'll have to switch over to the screen again. Thank you, Eric. Isn't Eric awesome, everyone? Let's give him a hand. All set.